God, it feels like it's been another week that surprised us, that unsettled us. As Jim prayed, we have more questions than answers. We live in disequilibrium. The news is surreal. We've become accustomed to the unusual. We're left grasping, wondering, uncertain, unsure, afraid. Digging ourselves in and digging ourselves out. We need you. Help us. Help us attend to you through your word, through your will, through your way, through your spirit. Speak to us. Give us hearts that are good soil. Give us eyes that can see. Give us ears that can hear. Give us minds that are able to discern what is good and right and true. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart if my words should stray in any way from your word. May they be not even heard, passed over, forgotten, deleted. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And now reading from the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 1, starting at verse 20. We pick up the first creation account on day five. This is the word of God. And God said, let the water teem with creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and everything with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kind, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And there ends the all-important chapter one of the Bible. Chapter 1 began with the thrilling story of God creating and forming, laying the foundation for all that would follow. In the beginning, our home in the universe, the earth, was formless and void, covered in water and shrouded in darkness. 
while the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. As the days of creation unfolded, God gave form to the earth and he filled it. He separated the day from the night, the waters from above from the waters below, the dry land from the waters below. God filled these realms by putting lights in the sky to separate the day and the night, creating living creatures to swim in the waters below and birds to fly in the sky above, and causing the earth to bring forth living creatures on the dry land. And finally, as the culminating act is the pinnacle of his work, on the sixth day, God created another type of living being, man, a person, a human being. In Hebrew, Adam. And the focus of the narrative clearly shifts at that point to this final creature, the last 25% of chapter 1 of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, is focused primarily, heavily, solely on the man, on humanity, on Adam. And so there we have it, the created, the creator and the created. And among the created order are non-living entities and living entities. And among the living entities are plants and then the ones that have the breath of life in them. And then among all of the living things that have been created, there's another clear and major distinction. There are those things that are created according to their own kind. According to their own kind. According to their own kind. Going back to verse 11 in chapter 1. Fully nine times the reader is told that God created the various plants and then more often the various breathing things according to their own kind. Until God gets to mankind. whom he is then said to create in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. For all the similarities that man, humanity, Adam, mankind, had and has with the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and particularly the animals that will roam the earth, and particularly, especially the mammals, he is distinctly different from them by design. The repeated phrase, according to their kind, is not intended as a lesson in taxonomy or species, but rather is a setup to distinguish them from what is to come. The human who is created in God's image, in the image of God, which in Latin, which was the language in which this idea was first robustly studied, is imago Dei. Let's say that together. Imago Dei. The image of God. And now for the first time, by God's choice, we have a part of the created order that is not wholly other from God, but now, has God, but now God has created and put something of himself on or even in or into creation. These creatures were not made according to their own kind, but instead according to God's kind, having or possessing the image or likeness of God in themselves, not being little gods, not being externally, eternally existing in and of themselves or ourselves, but nevertheless having the clear imprint of God in them or on them. 
in us or on us. And from this reality, at least three truths then follow or become apparent. First, being made in the image of God means that all human beings possess inherent value. Say that with me. We're going to read that together. Being made in the image of God means that all human beings possess inherent value. There is no human being who is not made in God's image. And because we are made in the image and likeness of the one who in his sovereignty has brought all things into being and who is holy good, holy good, all glorious, all knowing, every one of us has value. That's first. Unlike the almost nine million other species on planet earth, only man, humankind, is made in God's image and likeness, Imago Dei. Second, being made in the image of God means that all human beings are equally valuable. Some people are shorter than others. Some people are wider than others. Some people have greater bone density than others. Some people are better at math than others. Different human beings have these traits and others in varying degrees, but every human being, whether Swedish or Persian or Chinese or Puerto Rican, is made in God's image, which is not a property with degrees. It is not a degreed thing. You can't have more or less of it. You are either made in God's image or you're not. Something is either made in God's image or it is not. Regardless of age, size, weight, color, dimensions, health, wealth, experience, or education. Being made in God's image, possessing the Imago Dei, is the only thing that every human being shares equally and that grounds humanity in equality. Third, being made in the image of God gives full value particularly to those considered to be less valuable than others. In cultures that reject, either explicitly or tacitly, the idea of people being made in God's image, the strong always prevail. The weak are always discarded. This is most obviously seen when a culture disposes of bona fide human beings at the early stages of life, in other words, through abortion. Or when a culture treats children with neglect, not value. At the late stages of life, for example, through physician-assisted suicide or even through not treating with appropriate dignity those whose bodies and or minds are in the winding down phase. And those who are disabled, discarded by society because of their disabilities, their frailties, their deficiencies, even effectively putting to death something that itself possesses the image of God who is life. But these are only the most extreme forms. We see this much more commonly, or maybe we don't see this. We don't notice it. 
when we fail to see in every human being the image of the creator, our creator, because of a person's outward differences, because of where someone is from, because of what a person does or what a person cannot do, because of the color of a person's skin, the tint, the hue of their epidermis, or a culture in which he or she was, was raised, or the culture or society or context or worldview or perspective in which one was raised. But if human worth is not determined by what a person can do, but rather by who a person is, in other words, the image of God in that person, then the unborn, then children, then the elderly, then the sick, the weak, the poor, the disabled, those who are different, those who do not possess beauty by the world's standards, those who belong to certain groups, those who have been ostracized, criticized, demonized, incarcerated, are as valuable as everyone else and may be particularly valuable and valued by our creator who has imprinted himself on each and every one of them, on each and every one of them, each and every one of us. I grew up in a church that was part of the Southern Presbyterian Church until 1983 when after 100 years of separation and the wisdom of the Presbyterian Church, they decided, hey, maybe we should get back together. Though not everyone wanted to get back together, not everyone did get back together. After 100 years of separation, the church that I grew up in was a part of the denomination that it was a part of because that group of Americans believed that people who had been brought to this country from Africa should be, appropriately were, enslaved to them, to white people, for the benefit of the status quo and the culture at large and the white people who owned them. The largest Protestant denomination in the country today is the Southern Baptist Convention, which itself, too, had its roots, if you will, in a rebellion that insisted that African-American people, people brought here against their wills to this country, appropriately were to be, should be, for the sake of the economy or some God-ordained reason, slaves to the rest of Americans. The president of the Southern Baptist Convention said this week for the first time, black lives do matter. And he was clear to note that all lives do matter, but that to say all lives matter in some ways discounts the statement that at this time it is particularly important that the Southern Baptist Convention and that people who follow in the way of Jesus acknowledge that due process has not worked equally for all people in our country. This past week, 
the National Football League took a small step toward acknowledging that themselves as well. NASCAR and its following of millions and tens of millions finally this week took a step to acknowledge that as well themselves. As a culture, we are finally coming around to a truth that should have been obvious to us in the beginning. In the beginning. We have been a people who have been slow to learn, slow to acknowledge, slow to admit, slow to confess, slow to profess, slow to declare, slow to get on board. Arthur Brooks, a professor at Harvard University who has studied these sorts of things, said that, says that in 1965, 33% of Americans agreed with the tenets of Martin Luther King Jr.'s movement. 33%. Today that number is 95%. It's taken 50 plus years to get to that number. And one has to still ask why 5% still remain unconvinced, not on board. Human beings made in the image of God as we are have a history of forgetting what the scriptures say, what God has declared what should be obvious from creation, and thus putting down or devaluing other people outwardly and inwardly. The example of our time and today, and I will go out on a limb for some and make others terribly uncomfortable and unhappy, and say but the example for our time, and by no means the only example for our time, is and remains the great sin of America for more than 200 years. And some would say for almost 400 years. The way different types of people have been treated, people made in the image of God, acknowledged as human beings, but not always fully as human beings. At times, the laws of this country treated someone from Africa, as three-fifths, 60%, only 60% of a human being. At times earlier than that, even less. And times since then, various degrees. Christians over the centuries, we must confess, the church must confess, have gotten it wrong too many times. Pastors, preachers, Christians, elders, deacons have pointed to the scriptures and the letters of Paul and said Paul didn't prohibit slavery. Though when he wrote to Philemon about Onesimus, he encouraged him to receive him back as a brother in Christ more than as a slave. And the whole slave servant ever enterprise, frankly, in the New Testament was wholly different than the American experience where a slave then could have been someone who was an indentured servant, a bond servant. Someone who was a part of a family unit, someone who was treated well, someone who Paul and the rest of the scriptures state should be treated well, 
kindly, generously, with love. With love. In contrast to the American experience, which was cruel, always against a person's will, ruthless, brutal, merciless, heartless. How did we miss it? How did the church miss it? How did the church miss it for hundreds of years? How did the church turn a blind eye to the maltreatment and mistreatment of people made in God's image? How did we miss the whole Old Testament that treats the salvation event, the primary salvation event of the Jewish people being freed from slavery, being freed or liberated from the bonds of slavery in this world, not just to sin, but in this world? How did we miss that? How did we miss the being liberated, the salvation declared throughout the Old Testament from Exodus on, from the people of Egypt, from the people of Pharaoh, that they may be free to worship their God? The Latin American and the Roman Catholic theologians have for decades called Jesus the great liberator and developed a sort of theology that revolves around him as the one who frees. It's called liberation theology. It's rejected by many evangelicals, by many conservatives, by many orthodox, by many biblical and apostolic people as getting off on a tangent because of its focus on liberating people from the bonds, liberating people from maltreatment, liberating people from institutions that have oppressed them. And yet Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Paul talks over and over about freedom in Christ. Jesus was clearly a liberator of people. Someone who uplifted, someone who saw the broken, someone who heard the little man up in the tree the blind, the lame, the lepers along the side of the road, the woman in the crowd who was just another person, the Syrophoenician woman, the woman at the well. And Jesus set them all free. People of different ethnicities, people from different people groups. And the early Christian movement got this enough that they began to embrace people from different ethnic groups, countries, cultures, against what might be called today Jewish privilege. Today might be called here in our context white privilege. But there we might say was Jewish privilege. The Jews came first. The Jews were God's chosen people. And God's wanting more and more and more and other and other other people made in the image of God brought into his family. We must see and haul human beings, the Imago Dei. People made in the image of the one who is love. People who, being made in the image of the one who is love, who are loved. 
I didn't used to think much of white privilege. My existence was always my own existence until I started reading, until I started listening, until I started learning, until I started praying. I spoke with a good friend of mine yesterday who's African-American, who's a follower of Jesus, who embodies love and grace. And I said, has this been your experience, this whole Black Lives Matters thing? I wasn't sure because she doesn't live with an edge. She's not angry. She's not upset. She's not a rebel. She says, yes, that's been my experience through and through my entire life. What are we to do? Those of us who have not seen the racism in our midst must begin to listen. Listen to the stories of others. Listen to the stories of our African-American brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to the stories of those we've turned off who are talking on the other channel who we didn't want to listen to whose stories we didn't want to validate. We must listen. We must repent. On our own behalves and institutionally on behalf of our country and of Christianity and of the church. We must turn the other way. We must say we're sorry. We must say we regret the pain that we have caused, the ways that we have erred, the blindness that we have embraced. And we must learn, even well along in our lives, we must begin to learn. Ask, seek, knock. And we must advocate. We must stand up for those who have not been able to stand up for themselves for too long. We must stand with those who have tried to stand for themselves for a long time. We must join their voices for justice, which is simply the Greek and Hebrew word for righteousness in our world. Some of us who are parents of sons have had that talk with our sons about sex or that talk with our sons about drugs or that talk with our sons about alcohol or peer pressure. Few of us in my world, in my culture, in my circles have had to have the conversations that the few of my friends who have children who are people of color have had to have with their sons about being careful when you go out as a teenage boy, young man who is black, who is of color. To be on your guard, to be extra careful. To watch out because of what people will assume about you. About how the police will look at you. Of how to be overly, overly, overly careful and to realize what people are assuming.
eight days ago, Saturday, my front door was open. We were going in and out, and it was just open. And as we were loading some groceries or unloading some groceries, doing something, I saw two appeared to be teenagers walking down the sidewalk in front of my house, walked by. One of them was Asian. One of them was African-American. There aren't a lot of African-American. There are a lot of Asian, but there are not very many African-American people in our neighborhood, in our community, in our city. And so immediately the wheels began to turn in my head. What's going on? What's that person up to? What's he doing? This past Friday night, Saturday morning, really early in the morning, about 1, 1.30 a.m., my family and I were returning from a short trip. We were in the East Bay returning from several days away, needed to get gas, pulled off the freeway into a neighborhood that's different than the neighborhood in which we live. I got out of the vehicle that we'd rented, stopped at the nearest gas station. It was closed, locked up, lights were off, pumps were on, but no sign of life. I put my credit card in the pump, put the pump in the gas tank, hit go, and then all of a sudden there, 10 feet away from me, was a man maybe 25, 27 years old, African-American asking me about the vehicle I was driving. Was it mine? Was it, did it belong to the company I worked for? How much did it cost? And the wheels began to turn in my head. Get back into the car, lock the doors, tell Karen, watch out, this is not a good situation because of what's inside of me my mind and my heart. I'm not proud of that, I've got a lot of work to do. We must see in all human beings, first and foremost, before all other things, people who are made in the image of God, in whom the image of God resides, because God placed it there. The God who is love, the God who values those whom he has made. We must recognize our white privilege. Each at our own pace. We must remember there are no white people in the Bible. There are no at least people of northern European descent in the Bible. At all. Anywhere. We've made images of Jesus, figurines of Jesus that are as white as can be, blonde hair and blue-dyed. We've made nativity scenes, creches that are filled with white people. Maybe you've seen one occasionally that is filled with darker-skinned people and thought, that's odd. But it's actually closer to reality than not. And so the church has been slow to get on board, but it's time to continue to get on board.
Martin Luther King Jr. condensed the words of a 19th century abolitionist when he said, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. The moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. But what his condensation or his summarizing of the earlier preacher's words missed was that it doesn't bend on its own. It doesn't get there on its own. But it gets there toward justice, truth, and righteousness as God with the people of God in partnership bend it toward justice. Bend it toward righteousness. To such, I believe that we are continually called. That we might one day see all human beings first and foremost as people made in the image of the God who is love. We're going to watch another video now to wrap things up. I pray that as we go through this video again and a little differently, that your prayer would go back to Genesis 1 and that we would be reminded of the presence of God with us in one another and our fellow human beings, all of whom, every one of us, made in the image of the Creator, all of us valued, all of us valued equally, and especially those who have not had that value recognized in them by one another. May this be so.